Welcome to All Things Eerie from Eerie PA. This is Kathy. I'm your host for today's podcast. I hope y'all are doing well. I'm doing the best that can be expected. Um, The weather here in Erie this past weekend has certainly left a lot to the imagination. And I certainly would like to talk to whomever wrote the almanac for this region because they lied big time. When I read about what this spring was supposed to be like, and I know it's only approximate, but even if it would be in the 50s, I'd be thrilled. It has been snowing the last couple days, and it's mid-April. April. At this point, I'm willing to sacrifice some chocolate to the gods. But that's just me, and I know that I'm luckier than most, and I'm very thankful for that. For those that are on the front lines, I'm thankful. And I say that to those that are out there working, like my brother, who is one of them. But just for a little background, and I know I don't talk about much, I became sick in 2012 and I spent a lot of time in and out of the hospital and being homebound because of breathing issues to the point where I couldn't walk on my own without help or feeling like I had a cardio workout just because I stood up. And my point to this, I did that for five years. Years. So I understand the frustration of being stuck in a house and the loss of income, which I'm not going to get into because everybody has their own way of dealing with things and their own stressors. So for those that are going through this, you're not alone. And remember, we can all get through it together. So now back to the podcast. Just as a reminder that these episodes are available on these platforms, podbean.com, iTunes, Spotify, Facebook, and along with Twitter at All Things Erie from Erie PA, and that's Erie with three E's and Instagram at Kathy, B-R-D-L-Y, and that's Kathy with a K. So back when I was doing the research for last week's podcast, I came across a case about a young lady named Sarah Fox. And what made her case so interesting was that it was how she was found. So let's dig in. Sarah Fox was a drama student who went to the Juilliard School in New York to become an actress. Sarah was described as being a very bright and wonderful person who had her whole life ahead of her, and her family thought that Sarah would have gone far had she lived. One of the things that Sarah would do is grab her CD player and go jogging, and on the morning of May 19, 2004, Sarah left her apartment and went to Inwood Hill Park to never return. And that's the day that was the beginning of a nightmare for Sarah's family and the beginning of a bizarre investigation. Sarah had been missing for six days. There had been a search party looking for her. Sarah's nude body was finally found in a wooded area. The cause of death had been determined to be strangulation. Unfortunately, with the advanced state of decomposition, it could not be determined if Sarah had been sexually assaulted. What the police didn't find at the scene at first was Sarah's clothing or her portable CD player. Like I said, that was ev- the CD player was eventually found. 
100 feet from her body. What they did find with Sarah's body, she had been posed and it had been surrounded by two dozen branches and the petal and petals from a tulip tree. A botanist that was brought in examined one of the flower buds and she and they determined it was fresh enough to only have been there between 24 and 48 hours before Sarah's body was found. And this implied that the killer returned to the scene in order to surround her body with flowers. And not only that, but the botanist said that the flowers came from a totally different area in the park. In Sarah's advanced state of decomposition, that meant Sarah had more than likely been murdered within hours of leaving her home and that the killer returned to the scene of the crime days later to place petals around her body. When somebody who has done this prior, meaning murder somebody, it's not unheard of that they go back and they sit with the body or they check on the body because they want to relive that moment because that is what gets them their thrill. The police had leads, but it wasn't until December that they had announced they had a suspect, which was a 47-year-old Russian immigrant named Dmitry Scheinman. The police had questioned people who walked in the park, and they came forward with stories about Scheinman and his dog, who he allowed to be off its leash. And that in itself is just a pain in the ass to deal with anybody who walks their dogs and they follow those leash rules. But this guy apparently also would pick fights with fellow dog walkers over the fact that his dog was unleashed. This is when the case starts to take a bizarre twist. Scheinman, in his interview, told police that he had visions of Sarah's murder and spoke about details about the murder that hadn't been released to the public. So that puts him up to numero uno. Now my question is, did he really have visions or did he come across the body and thought to himself, I'm going to get my 15 minutes of fame and he is the one that put branches and petals there himself or is he the actual killer? which is some food for thought. So the police did what they would do in any normal investigation. They took his DNA and they put him under surveillance to see what he would do. They watched him and they waited for the DNA to come back. He, and he seemed to be fairly normal in his routines. And then the results came back. Of all things, there was no match. So the police are back to square one. But what they, but they were able to put Shyman behind bars for two months for an assault charge for hitting a fellow do dog walker. But Scheinman was still on their radar for, for Sarah's murder. Then Scheinman packs up his family and moves to all places South Africa. This guy seemed like he wanted to get some distance between him and what happened to New York. In New York, right? This is what you would think. A couple years go by, it's 2012. And of all people to show up out of the blue is Scheinman. He's looking for a publisher for his book that he wrote while he was living in South Africa. In the book, he writes that he was used as a scapegoat 
and actually called a press conference on the steps of the police station claiming that he knew the name of Sarah's killer and that he was going and he was willing to give the police the name. However, it turned out that the police already had interviewed this person and was no longer viewed as a person of interest. Well, to me, shit, if that don't beat all, my question is, did he know that the police ever questioned this guy at all? If not, how did he know about him? How did he come up with the name? I mean, really come up with the name. Was he reading newspapers? Was he going online? After all, this is 2012. There was also DNA that had been collected at the scene of Sarah's murder. The police tried to match it to Scheinman, like I said, but it didn't match. They had to let him go. Then there was a chain that had been used at an Occupy Wall Street protest to hold open an emergency gate, exit gate at a subway station, prompting people to sneak in without paying the fare. And for whatever reason, the police tested it for DNA and they got a hit. When they ran it through CODIS, it came up that it matched a technician that handled both jobs. So this is a setback for them. Did the police ask him those questions? They sure did. And this is what his answer, and I'm talking about the question, how did he get the name? Where did he come up with it? You know, did he really get these questions or the name out of the newspaper? Things like that. Why psychic visions of Sarah? That's how, like I said, I should you not. Shyman claims that he has these visions. Two more years go by, and I really feel it's to get his name back in the limelight. Scheinman agreed to an interview with a bigger newspaper, and he invites this, this interviewer to his home in Cape Town. He shows the person a picture of Sarah, and if this isn't creepy to beat all, he kept Sarah's picture under glass in his coffee table. So imagine a coffee table that has a glass top. He, he kept her picture between two pieces of glass in the coffee table. Yeah. I mean, that's just messed up. And in the interview, this is where Scheinman claims that he had visions of Sarah talking to him about what happened the night of the murder. And that Sarah has told him who the real murderer was and also that she will not rest until the person is caught. And you're not going to believe this. And I don't even know how Sarah's family can even bear to even hear these words that Sarah loves him. Now, isn't this guy married? And doesn't he have a family of his own? He's fixated and obsessed with Sarah. I, my question is, what is his wife thinking at this point? Now, in this research that I was doing online, because you can only do so much because the libraries are closed, it was mentioned that a reporter got a hold of the letter that Scheinman gave to the police at the 34th precinct in the NYPD. And in that letter, the name that Scheinman gave was a teacher from the Juilliard school that Sarah had been going to and that he had gained this knowledge by clairvoyance. Now, again, was he guessing or did he actually know? Scheinman also claimed that he was being unfairly blamed for the death of Sarah and that he still continued to receive visions and quote unquote, talk to Sarah. As I continued to do research for this case, it seemed that the police really did seem to focus on Scheinman. 
but then they shifted towards two other men and the investigation has slowed since. Although they haven't forgotten Scheinman, there seems to be a total of three suspects in this case. And throughout the years, there have been posts and articles that have brought this case back into the into the light where it definitely belongs. Sarah deserves justice, just like all murder victims. She didn't deserve to die like that. And Sarah deserved to be treated with respect. The question is always why? I'm sure Sarah's mother, family has asked this a million, a million and one times. Why was it because they, him, her, or the, mur uh, the murderer thought that Sarah had money on her? Was it sexual or was it because Sarah was up for some scholarship at school? We can sit and discuss and ask ourselves these questions, but those that really know are Sarah and the killer. Because as far as I could see, Sarah was not seeing anyone. No one was mentioned in any of the articles that I read. If she did have a boyfriend, he was ruled out. The only person that I saw mentioned was Sarah's mother. And I hope that Sarah was able to tell or talk as much as she was able to to the forensic pathologist, meaning to give up as much evidence as she could. And on the topic of family, of those that we do these cases on, I know there are some podcasts out there that are funny and they make jokes while they're doing their podcast. And sometimes you have to have a dark humor while doing these. And I admit I too have a very dark humor and sometimes it can be very dark. If I had a different health situation or if I was younger, I might have been in criminology and gone into police work to work homicide. Who knows? But I recently watched a show that dealt with family, the family of murder victims and how they had been handling their lives. We don't think sometimes when we do these and what we say, we have to remember that those who we do these podcasts were about who we do these podcasts about were real people and lived real lives and how our work can affect the family members. These can and could be triggers for them. For example, for me, I don't like to do these cases that have to do with children. I will do whatever I can not to do them. It's very hard for me personally. Also, sometimes we focus more on the killer than the victims, which is a disservice to the victims. There was more to their lives than just the last few hours or days and their murder. That is just a thought that I had while watching some TV the other day. I was able to unwind and watch some ID, which is what a lot of us do that do these podcasts. That is our, some of our favorite things to do. The case I had was short, so I have a second one for you. And this one brings us back to Erie PA. It has a little bit of a strangeness to it. This one will take us back to the 1980s when most of us were just, and yes, I had to look these up because I was just in kindergarten at the time, coming out of 1979. In 1980, John Lennon had been shot and killed in New York City. Post-it notes just went on sale, and we all know what post-it notes are because a lot of us use it to make signs on windows. The miniaturization continued with new technology, new consumer pro products. The camcorder and fax machines were just coming out. And we all remember fax machines because we all hated them because of the paper. Pac-Man was just released, the arcade game. Politics had entered the Olympics when the U.S. boycotted the Moscow Olympics. Mount St. Helen had erupted and war broke out between Iran and Iraq. The average cost of living, the cost of a new house was around $68,700. The average income was $19,500. Monthly rent was around $300. Cost of gas, $1.19. Now, 
I had looked up 1979, just the year prior, it was 86, 86 cents a gallon. And it probably jumped up that high because of the war breaking out between Iran and Iraq. So it was very interesting to see the differences in the cost. And I was surprised to see that between a year, the average income had jumped up along with you know, the with when gas jumped up because the average income the year prior was only, uh, I think, 17, 17,500 or something like that. So it, the average income jumped up along with the cost of living. So it was, it was interesting to see that because our cost of living hadn't jumped up. Uh, our, our, I should say our cost of living has jumped up, but our average income hadn't. But like I said, it seems like things never change, and yet at the same time, it, it does. But in December on, on in December on but in December in 1980, there were some issues going on in Erie that were known or unknown, and it seemed like Corporal Corporal Owen was in the thick of it all. According to much rumor and much speculation, it was thought that Corporal Owen committed suicide. And why would a veteran of nine years on the police force and a, and a Navy veteran commit suicide? To answer that question, you would have to go back a few months and look into an investigation of burglaries in the area that were that was committed by a gang of or, organized criminals that claimed they had the help of the police. These groups claimed that the police were helping them in looting homes of jewelry, cash, and other valuables. Not only that, these gangs were into gambling, including a numbers running and sessions of high stakes illegal dice game called Barbot. Barbot, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, which was rampant in this area at the time. Not only was this hanging over the head of police of Erie, but on November 25th, 1980, at the home of one Louis Nardo, there was a burglary that resulted in the loss of jewelry and other valuables from the Nardo home that estimated at $550,000. Owen was on the premises when a diamond ring was that w- had not originally been taken during the burglary, then turned up missing. These officers were questioned about the theft and they were given polygraph tests. Two of the officers came up, their test came up inconclusive. While it was reported that Owen, his test was off the charts. The two officers that tested inconclusive retested and passed while Owen was given the chance to retest and was rescheduled. Around that time, there was an active burglary ring going on and it was associated with the eerie crime figure Cesar Monieco and Fat Sam Esper. Esper would later become a cooperative witness and wear a wire for the police in the investigation of Owen. The conversation reportedly didn't go well with Esper saying to Monieco, I wonder who killed Owen and Monieco replying, you know who killed Owen, which ended that conversation. And if this is your first time hearing my podcast, please go back and listen to Ray Ferrito. Erie's one-time claim to the, to the mafia. This could overlap with some of the information about that was about the organized crime in the area and the claims that the police were on the take. Not only that, Owen was, like I said, rescheduled to retake a polygraph. It wasn't just the police, but it went well and truly deep into the political arena at the time. Now, fast forward to March 1991, that investigation of Owen, his murder file was found in a file cabinet inside City Erie Solicitor 
solicitor's office. According to reports at the time, city solicitor Paul Susco, the contacts, contents that were found in the file had stunned him. The contents included confidential police reports and reports from the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office. But now back to the case, Owen Owen's case was ruled a homicide by the medical examiner. Owen was found with a gunshot wound to the chest, but there was no gun that was found nearby. But upon investigation, a man had been found walking his dog, and he had said, yes, he had found the gun, which ended up happened to be Owen's service revolver. But upon investigation, a man who was walking his dog said he found the gun, which happened to be Owen's service revolver, and for whatever reason, he moved it. The man willingly showed the police where he had put the gun, but by this time, it had been several days since the shooting. The man took the police to the railroad tracks down by Pittsburgh Avenue, And this happened on January 9th, and the shooting took place on December 29th, 1980. Even though the gun had been exposed to the elements for 11 days, the police were able to find traces of Owen's blood in and and on the barrel, indicating that the gun had been fired at close range. So what else had the de- so what else did the detectives find? The police also found a lighter at the scene which was bagged as evidence but for whatever reason never made it to the police station and cigarette butts but they were not the brand that Owen smoked. Upon further investigation, the police found two truck drivers that were in the area at the time of Owen's death. They said they saw what looked like three silhouettes of three people, including one who appeared to be a police officer, standing near the warehouse where the body of Owen was found. They also reported seeing the idling police cruiser nearby. Eventually, the case was passed off to another Erie detective and then state police investigators and then the state attorney general's office. Since then, each file has become one of its own and quite very thick. But there has never been that crucial piece of evidence needed to solve the case so it can finally be solved. Or has it been there the whole time and no one has wanted to say it or wanted to bring it to light because of the backlash it would bring? In December of 2000, the Attorney General's office gave the case back to local investigators and Erie County District Attorney at the time, Brad Falk, turned it over to the state police investigator, Trooper Dana Anderson, and Erie Deputy Police Chief at the time, James Skindle. As it sits right now, even though Owen's death was considered a homicide, it was thought he took his life over a ring that he had that he had to take retake a polygraph knowing he was going to fail. But it turned out the police fi- finally, years later, did find out which police officer that stole the ring. But because of statute of limitations had passed, they couldn't charge this person anyway. So does it really sound like Corporal Owen committed suicide? I'm going with murder, and I have a feeling it was because he found out about the home burglaries and wasn't cool with it, quote unquote, or it or wasn't involved and it was getting to his conscience. Were these burglaries insurance fraud? 
that's not for me to say. I hope that you enjoyed these two cases, and please remember they are available on these platforms, iTunes, Facebook, Podbean.com, and Spotify. Also, we're on Twitter at All Things Erie from Erie PA, and that's Erie with three E's, and also Instagram at Kathy, B-R-D-L-Y, and that's Kathy with a K. And please don't forget to take a moment and rate us on both iTunes and podbean.com. It helps us out and lets us know how we're doing. And the sources that I used will be posted on the Facebook page. So for now, stay safe, stay healthy. This is Kathy signing off.